I think they're uh, recording it for later, so it'll all be good. So um, how many of you uh, over Thanksgiving were able to keep your blood gravy level below 0.1? How many guys were able to do that? Isn't that good? It's like the one day where gluttony is okay, but it's like the day of atonement. It's all covered. It's okay for that one day. So there we go. All right, I'm going to read some statements for you. Let me know what you think of these. Sometimes God is angry with me. Sometimes he's happy with me. Mary says she thought you guys were going to boo. Sometimes he blesses me. Sometimes he curses me. Sometimes God cares for me. Sometimes he's distant from me. Today he may want to prosper me, but tomorrow he may want to give me poverty to humble me. Sometimes he wants to heal me, but sometimes he has a higher purpose to teach me a lesson with my sickness. We're doing buzzers now? Today I feel, like his, uh, I feel his forgiveness of all my sins. Tomorrow I may feel responsible for all my sins. Let's close in prayer. Welcome to Schizophrenic Christianity. This is how many Christians are hearing the gospel message is that sometimes God's good, sometimes he's not. Sometimes he's happy, sometimes he's not. What happens when Christians get the message that mixes covenants are like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Sometimes they feel saved, sometimes they don't feel saved, never anchored in the cross of Jesus Christ. So uh, when you ask them, when is it that God's happy with you? Because they get this mixed message. Sometimes God's happy, sometimes he's angry. And uh, when is God happy with you? They'll say, when I do right. Right? What the problem is, when do you ever do enough right things? Uh, when you ask them, does that mean that when you do wrong, God is angry with you? They'll say, yes, that means God is angry with me when he does wrong. And they'd be, the only passages they have memorized are the ones about God's fierce wrath from the Old Testament, right? So those Christians who believe that God is sometimes angry with them, sometimes happy with them, they're living under the old covenant of the law, and they have not yet moved into the new covenant of grace. So this is a review of some of the things we've been talking about. Under the law, God demanded righteousness for men. Under grace, God provided righteousness for men. This would be a good part to yay. These are no more boos coming in here, okay? Turn off your boo meters, hopefully. Yeah. I remember we had one guy who attended the church for a year. He said he brought a duck, a duck call, and any times he would hear the old covenant preach, he was going to do a duck call. He would go to different churches and do this. He came here for years, never had to use the duck call, so I'm happy about that. So, so I guess that first part we could have had a wah with a, with a buzzer thing here. So, Under law, everything depended on man for his obedience. Under grace, everything depends on Jesus and what he did on the cross. Boy, this is different. The law demands but will not lift a finger to help. Grace imparts and has been accomplished by Jesus everything on your behalf. So let's open up with Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. For by a single offering. How many offerings did it take to do this? So are you going to need to do anything else to obtain all this? For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, not just when you feel it, not just when you do something worthy, is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we're going to look at that single offering in depth today, but I think it's going to really impact you. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, now he's about to quote a passage from Jeremiah. Okay, these next two verses are a passage, a quote from the Old Testament. This is the covenant that I will make with them. So this is Jeremiah looking hundreds of years before the new covenant that God was going to cut. This is the, kind of, this is the new covenant I, I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their, on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. 
Where there is forgiveness of sin, there is no longer any offering for sin. So the old covenant was based on you, thou shalt, thou shalt not. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. The new covenant is the, of grace is the Lord saying, I will. I will. I will. Remember, we looked at a whole message on our part is to be in helpless dependence and say, thank you, Jesus, and not try to add anything to it. All right? The clear emphasis and demand of the covenant of law is on you performing. The clear emphasis and demand on the new covenant is God himself performing. He will do everything on your behalf, so just rest in that. All right. Hopefully some of this is sounding familiar. If you're new here, this is the kind of stuff the Bible talks about a whole lot, so we do too. All right? Remember, Christianity is done, 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 not do, do, do. If you focus too much on your part, it'll be a bunch of do-do. You should have seen that one coming. <laughs> have I not been with you long enough you could not see do-do coming? Come on. I want to read that verse 18 again uh, of Hebrews 10. Where there is forgiveness of these, these what? All your sins, all your iniquities. It's all been dealt with. Well, what about one of the ones in the future? It's all been dealt with. There's no longer any offering for sin. When will there be no longer any offering for sin? Uh, when your sins and lawless deeds have been forgiven forever and they're remembered no more. So let's go into this here a little bit. So um, uh, just another quick little review is we're doing a series on the blood covenant. And God entered into a blood covenant with man. You don't just enter into covenant. You cut a covenant because it's through the shedding of blood. And uh, through the shedding of blood, the two become one. And so um, if I were entering into covenant with you, all of my strengths, all my gifts, all of my assets would now be at your disposal. And vice versa, all of your strengths, all of your assets, all of your talents, should I need them, will be at my disposal. Here's the other thing. All of my debts, all of my inadequacies, all my weaknesses would be swallowed up by your strengths and vice versa. This is going to be very important. And then it would be sealed with blood. We would cut our wrists. The blood would flow. We would rub them together. The blood would flow together, symbolizing that we have become absolutely one. And so uh, I want you to remember that. All of my debts and all of my troubles would be paid for by you in this covenant. When God entered into covenant with Abraham... All of man's debts, all of man's troubles would be paid for by God himself. This is about to be super good, okay? So God said to Abraham, is it ringing to you guys or just, okay. Do I need to switch to the handheld? Because I don't remember this doing this with a handheld. Cheryl, where'd the handheld go? All right. It's like a baton race in the Olympics. Hold on, is it, did the ringing just stop now? Just the very threat. Oh, no, there I go. How are we doing? All right. My voice got lower with this microphone. God said to Abraham, I'm yours. I'm giving myself to you. I'll be your shield. I'll be your exceedingly great reward. And he gave him a, and they cut a covenant, and this covenant was passed down to his children's 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 children. It was an unbreakable covenant that he made. So anyone who's Abraham's children uh, were able to partake of this. And then... Um, so uh, we saw two weeks ago that God delivered the nation of Israel from slavery. Everything's going great. They're, they're going to meet their covenant God. They're marching up to Mount Sinai. Everything's going to be good. And then there's, you know, they see this kind of God. They're terrified. There's thunder. There's lightning. They're like, hey, Moses, you go up there. So Moses goes up there, and he comes back down with the law. It's like, what a bummer. Like, like everything's going great here. Now we got the law. And we saw that the law, uh, it was not an interruption of the covenant. It was waking them up. It was waking them up to, you guys are way more sinful. The sin problem is way deeper than you ever thought. And uh, so God gave us a law to show us how badly we need a covenant, how badly we need God to come and solve all of our sin issues. So the law was not a way to approach God. It was a way to drive us to despair so we could see we need a Savior to come take care of this whole thing. Okay? But I want you to realize, when Moses came down from the mountain meeting with God, he didn't just come down with the law. He came down with plans for a tabernacle. Okay? The tabernacle is how God and his people were going to live as one together. 
So when God uh, went up to the top of Mount Sinai, um, I believe he was actually standing in heaven or at least had the heavenly realm open to him. So it says that the, the tabernacle that he was given, well, we'll just read it here in a second. The, the, the tabernacle on earth was just a representation of the true heavenly tabernacle. Okay, so let's read it in um, Exodus chapter 8. I think they're going to have a different version up here than the one I have. The place where the Levite priests serve, it's talking about the tabernacle, the tabernacle is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Because imagine Moses, he's up on the mountain. He has this, I don't know if he's in heaven, he has the heavenly realm revealed to him. He's got to be standing there with his mouth open thinking, this is the kind of God that we're entering into covenant with. And he, he, sees, all, he sees all of this. We've become one with this. So now he has to go back down the mountain and try to represent to the people what he saw up there on top of the mountain. So God says, listen, I'm going to give you a visual aid. I'm going to give you the little picture of all this. I'm going to reduce all of infinite heaven into this little finite, this unspeakable glory into this little tent. Okay, it's going to be a visual aid for people. We're going to put pictures inside the tent. They'll represent different things. And uh, every stitch and every part of this tent is going to tell you about something about this place that you're standing in right now. So can you guys see it? He's seeing all of this. And God's like, they're never going to be able to get all of this. So we're going to give them a little tent to give them a little picture of it. Okay. So this is why God said, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain, because he wanted it to be an accurate representation of what's going on up in heaven. Okay? So the tabernacle was this, uh, was this living earthly model that reflected a heavenly reality. Everybody see that? Like a miniature model, a miniature replica. Okay? So if we put out the, uh, the slide of the tabernacle, here, let's talk this through. We're going to basically be going through a lot of the Old Testament, but it's going to be rich. You guys good? I want you guys to stick with me. This is going to be rich. All right. So, boy. I like that picture. That's powerful. I think a lot of times they just have like these scale drawings of like these little tents, but the manifest presence of God was literally dwelling among the, among the tent. Okay, so let's pretend with that in mind, I want you to kind of see this and I'm going to kind of say, imagine that this building is, uh, is the tabernacle. Okay, outside of this building are the, are the walls of the desert. That's where the tents were set up according to tribe. They were all shaped like a cross. Everything was facing towards the tent. Literally, um, as they rested, they rested facing the presence of God. So outside the walls of the desert, they're living out there. And there's this curtain. You can see the curtain in the picture there. Picture that as these walls, curtains going all around the tabernacle proper. Okay, the walls of the building. By this front row of this set of chairs, you can see about a third of the way in. I want you to notice, there's only one way into the tabernacle. There's only one way into the holy place. There's, only, there's, not, there's not many roads to God. There's only one way. How are we doing? Okay, he's making it very clear. There's only one way you're going to approach the presence of God. And so, um, so imagine the tabernacle proper starts about here. Uh, there, there's, uh, there, there's only one door in. As you can see, as you're walking in, there's this brazen altar right there. This is where all the sacrifices were made. Then they would keep going, and there was this brass mirror that they would go to. And then they actually went into the first tent, the first compartment of the tent called the holy place. On your right, there would be the table of showbread. Let's pull up the next diagram that's kind of lame. Yeah. It's, not, it's not quite as attractive as this one. This is more like uh, Microsoft clip art kind of like thing. But anyway, here we go. And so... Um, so, yeah, so you walk in, you got the altar, burnt offerings, you got the labor. Now you're going inside the tent. You're going inside the holy place. And so the table of showbread would be on your right. There was a menorah with candles. It was the only light inside of the, inside of the building, uh, inside of that tent. There was a, um, you, in front of you, there's a golden altar of incense constantly going up. And then there's this thick veil there. The veil was so thick it said that um, strong warrior horses were not able to pull it apart. Okay, so this is a very thick veil. Um, so thick, it was woven together with gold, 
Behind that veil would be a box. That would be the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant. This room did not have any light in it. It was open to the sky, but God himself was the light. So imagine there's this box, the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so the first little tent is lit by the candlestick, but inside this holy of holy, no human light is God himself is their light. Okay, the manifest presence of God. This is powerful. You know what the innermost part of that tent was called? Father's house. Okay, this is, this is going to be good here. Okay, so that is where Father, their covenant God, chose to live among his people. He says, I will be their God. They will be my people. He said he would be among them. Okay, so this is how he's doing it. So they could meet with God in this little miniature replica of heaven, okay, right there on earth. This is Father's house. They can meet together. This is so awesome, but they realize they've blown it. How can these people get into the presence of a holy God? Like, God wants to be with them, but he's like, listen, you guys, this isn't how it works. And so, um, so they're like, man, why do we have to have the law? Why couldn't we just have Father's house? This would be so great. And so, um, so you've got no right to go into the place. And so remember, they're in covenant. And so when you're in covenant and these people have got debts, who pays the debt? God does. Oh, I don't know. This is good. <laughs> they're the ones with all the problems. They're the ones who can't come to God because of their mess-ups, and they're in covenant, and God says, I'm going to take care of this because I want you to be in Father's house, okay, because they're in covenant. So God takes it upon himself to pay all the debts so they could be in his presence, so they could visit with him. This is how God's, listen, God's trying to restore us even better than the Garden of Eden. Remember where they walked with him in the cool of the day? They had fellowship. We were created for fellowship with God. Sin's breaking it. God's like, don't worry, I've got a plan. I'm going to bring it all together, but he's going to even take it to a different level here. We're going to see in just a second. So um, God swallows up the debt. So God says, listen, um, I've called you into covenant. The way that I meet with you, uh, according to this law, is you sin. I'm going to take it upon myself. I'm going to pay all of your debts, okay? And so the, uh, the Israeli nation, he wants them to move from the door of the Father's house actually into the Father's house. So how on earth is he going to do this? How are these sinful people going to come into the presence of God? So he does it through the priesthood. Okay, so it's, it's not the best thing, but it's, it's a good solution that's going to point towards something better. So in the priesthood, they were representing the people, so their representative could go into the presence of God. So there was one family from one tribe uh, that would take the place of the whole nation. And the thing is, the priests got their own issues, too. And so there's this whole sacrifice system of blood. How many of you guys have read Leviticus? Yes. How many read Leviticus lately? <laughs> And so um, there's this whole sacrifice system. What is it doing? It's helping us see the awful cost of blood. I mean, there's rivers of blood. I mean, these, these guys are like butchers, these priests. I mean, it's just constant chop, kill, slice, burn. I mean, it's just a, it's just a hot mess. So, God's, so um, God's like, listen, here, I want you to see the cost of sin. So when you sin, there was a sin offering. If you sinned against your brother and uh, you hurt them, there was a trespass offering. Now that you put it right and you're like, hey, I'm right with God, I want to celebrate, there was a peace offering. When they give the peace offering, they would lift their hands, they would praise God, it was awesome. They would take a part of it, it was the only, the only offering you could eat. So part of it went to God, part of it went to the priest, part of it they took home, they went and celebrated. I am in shalom. Uh, I, I'm in peace with God. They would recognize this. Um, then there was, uh, if you're really feeling, you know what, I, God is so wonderful, I want to give myself to him forever voluntarily, there was a burnt offering. It was a consecration offering, okay? We did a, we did a whole series on the offerings of Leviticus. So um, here's the trouble, though, is this is awesome. I'm close to God. I'm feeling it. I've, I've given myself to him. Next week, you blow it all over again. <sighs> more sin offerings, more trespass offerings, more peace offerings, more burnt offerings. And, and so back to the tabernacle, sin offering again. Same thing in... Here we are in November, same thing in December, same thing in January, same thing in February. But, you know, it's removing the guilt temporarily. It's better than nothing, right? And then the, the priest is able to go in and, 
Rivers of blood, rivers of blood. That's all that's going on here. And uh, just about the time you're right with God, you got to go back. But you're waiting for October. What is going on in October? And October was the one day where it seemed like God took every offering that you'd ever offered, and he's like, listen, it's enough for the year. Uh, and he puts it all together in one huge offering, and the, um, the priest who is representing you could enter into Father's house, enter into the presence of God one time a year. And it's like you got to go in there with them, okay? So on that particular day, um, your high priest was very important because he was your representative, okay? Here's the deal. You knew the high priest, I mean, he was someone who was taken out from among you. And so it would have been a lot simpler if God had made covenant with an angel. An angel could go and do this. But here's the deal. An angel doesn't know what you've gone through. An angel can't represent you, right? You needed someone taken out from among you, one of your brothers who could, who could empathize with your weaknesses, right? And so, um, so you, you could go to this, uh, uh, this high priest and you could say to him, listen, I've blown it again. He's like, listen, I understand it. I've been tempted too. Uh, I've had a rough week there. I've been there myself. And you could really relate to this guy. You could relate to this high priest. This guy, this guy was a normal guy. So when you went to visit your high priest, he had on these incredible garments, these beautiful garments. And I'm not going to go through the whole outfit. But he had a stone on each shoulder. And on one stone had six of the tribes of Israel. Another uh, stone had the other six. There was 12 tribes of Israel. Then he had on a breastplate that had 12 different stones. It's like I could see my name carried on this high priest. He's, he's literally, he is my strength. I'm, he's carrying me on his heart, okay? So imagine, he's going into the presence of God, and you can see, there's my tribe. There, there's my name. There's my tribe represented. The, the high priest, he's carrying me into the presence of God. He, I, I become one with the priest. I'm in his heart. I'm on his shoulders. I, I have the, the authority there. And you could look and you could see, uh, that man is my representative. And it was as if you were going into Father's house yourself, you were going in to experience the presence of God. And so you can imagine, man, it's coming up to October. That day of atonement is coming when that high priest is going to carry you on his shoulder, carry you into his heart. He's one of you. He's going into Father's house. So here's what the great day of atonement will look like. Everyone's looking forward to it. They've been preparing for this. And then they bring out the law. So I want you to imagine you're there. Okay, you're back in Israel thousands of years ago. And uh, they'd read the law. And everyone would gather around. They'd begin to read the law. And uh, the priest would ask, have you kept this? Have you kept this? They would remember back through all the, all the year. They've sinned in their thoughts. They've sinned in their intentions. Their heart has sinned. They're like, I've wronged. And so they say you've never seen real grief until you've seen the Israelites repent on the Day of Atonement. They're feeling their distance from God. They're feeling how they've offended their creator, their covenant God who's been so good to them. They howled and they wept over their sin and they stare at the law of, the God, of God and the law of God seems to scream back at them. You're guilty. I don't know if you remember a couple weeks ago, I told that illustration of how, um, you know, I would get up in the morning and not look in the mirror, and I would have crazy hair because I have a lot of gel. And so um, it's almost like a protective helmet. I don't have to wear hard hats on uh, construction sites. And so, and so because of that, my hair is crazy in the morning, and I wasn't looking in the mirror, and I was, you know, I was going out, and um, I came in one day, and I looked, and I was like, oh, my word, I talked to several people today. My hair is crazy. Uh, no wonder they weren't making eye contact. I wanted to say, eyes down here, eyes down here, but they were looking at it, and so... Um, and when I looked in the mirror, it showed me a true picture of myself, right? That was the law. You're looking into it, and you're like, that's not the way it's supposed to be, right? I need to make some changes, right? So that's what the law was. It lets you know you are far, far from where you ought to be. So here it is, Day of Atonement. And as you're looking at the law, how far from you, how far you are from it, the priest takes off his beautiful garments and puts on a normal tunic, just like the other priest. You wouldn't even you're like, hold on, is that the high priest? I can't recognize him without all of his vestments and all of his beautiful garments, it's now he looks just like everyone else. This is going to be good. 
And so uh, first of all, he's got to offer an offering for himself because he too is a sinner. All right? And so then they bring out the sin offering on the Day of Atonement. This is going to be big. And so they bring out two goats. And so they cast lots. And so, uh, so there's the first goat there. It's been specifically chosen. It's a goat. It's perfect. It's without spot. It's without blemish. And you can imagine they're gathered outside the, uh, the door of the tabernacle. And let's say you're new here. Okay, let's say you're kind of new to this whole Day of Atonement thing. And you're like, um, hey, uh, what are you doing? Uh, where, where are you going? And so uh, the, the high priest looks at you and says, I'm going, I'm going for you into Father's house. I'm going to take you into me right into Father's house. I'm going to carry the blood of this sacrifice. And it's going to cover all of your sins for the last year. And you will stand in me right in the immediate presence of God. And you'll be accepted. And when I come out again, you'll know the price was paid. The sacrifice was accepted. I can only stay there for a moment, but at least you would have visited with the covenant God for just a moment. Okay? You get excited. You're like, hey, this is awesome. Can I come too? Absolutely not. The only way you get into the, uh, the Father's house is through me. Your representative, briefly, just one time in the year. Okay? So you stand back in the crowd, and this time they've cast lots for the two animals. And now here's the first part of the offering. So they get the first goat. The high priest goes over to the first goat. It's a very solemn moment. They, they recognize their sin. They recognize it's, there's a shedding of blood and a giving of a life to pay for their sin. A solemnity comes over the crowd. And the high priest, uh, there's two Levites holding the goat. The high priest places his hand on the, um, uh, on the goat. It says he leans on them, and he begins to confess all of our sin, all of us together. Symbolically, what he's doing is he's taking all of our sin, and he's laying it upon the animal. And now the goat has symbolically become polluted with all of our sin. Can you guys see it? He's leaning upon it. He's confessing it. He's polluting this thing. The Levite takes a sharp knife, catches, uh, cuts the throat of the animal, catches the blood in a basin. And the high priest turns around, your representative, and he's there as if he were you. And he's taking this blood, and you can see it. He's walking, uh, he's walking uh, through, the, through the Holy of Holies. He uh, goes through the curtain. And um, I want you to see this, that... Uh, when that knife flashed and the animal died and the blood was shed, your sin was covered at that moment. Okay, so he's going, he's walking, it, he's going towards Father's house. He goes through the veil. He takes the blood and he sprinkles it on top of the, um, on top of the Ark of the Covenant in a place called the mercy seat. So you can imagine the fiery presence of God is right there. He sprinkles this right on the mercy seat on, the, on, the, uh, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the blood was saying, the ones for whom this blood was shed can now stand in the presence of God. Because they're in him. Israel was now able to stand in the presence of God because of the shedding of blood. And as your representative, he stands there. And I want you to see this. It doesn't matter how tired he is. He is not allowed to sit down. You could not sit down, okay? Because God's reminding them, listen, it's not finished. Um, you'll be back next year. This is great. This is temporary. But this isn't finished yet. You cannot sit down. It only covers your sin. It doesn't deal with your sin. Okay, so they could come into God's presence a little bit, but they couldn't stay there. Okay, and so, uh, because why? Because those people are going to go off again. They're going to blow it. It's going to be terrible. So still standing, he moves away from the presence of God through the veil. He comes out. And his very presence is telling you the blood has been accepted. The people rejoice. The sins covered. They, they, they've heard, the day of atonement is incredible. And so, um, so he comes out, and you're standing there, and you're like, well, that was great. I, I didn't actually see what happened. He's telling me what happened. I, I just have to trust what's happened. And you're about to go home. But there's another goat, okay? They bring out the other goat that's still alive, and now they're putting away all the knives. They're putting away everything. And so they've got a little rope around the goat's neck. Uh, two Levites are holding it. And once again, uh, the priest does something interesting. He begins leaning on it, 
putting his hands on the goat and begins confessing the sins all over again. Like, hold on, didn't we, didn't we just take care of this? Why is, why is he doing this again? It begins to really confess your sins. And when you hear your sin confessed, you're feeling as if that sin of yours is being placed on this animal. And you see your sin all over again. You know it's already been paid for, but now something else is happening. God's trying to tell you something. He wants you to feel again the laying of your sin on that goat. This time, the goat's handed over to the Levite, and he walks right through the crowd with all of your sin. He goes right out. He goes right out, out, outside the, uh, the tabernacle tent. He walks out in the desert, and here you are watching him, and he keeps going and going. He's a little speck on the horizon. Pretty soon, you can't see him anymore. He's going to be gone all afternoon. And um, then he's going to come back, and he just has a piece of string in his hand. Like, what's going on here? Your sin was paid for in the Holy of Holies with blood, but you couldn't feel that. God wanted you to see and feel your sin being taken away. By the enactment of the goat running off and getting lost in the desert, it's as far as the east from the west, so far he's removed your trespasses from you. God doesn't want, see, God doesn't want you to just know about it intellectually. He wants you to have an experience of your sins being taken away from you. The Day of Atonement was the greatest day they had. There was no other nation that could approach God in this way. But um, the problem is the high priest, he was a sinner. Like, he had issues. Um, like, like he, he had things that he had to pay for also. The offering, hopelessly insufficient. Really, like a goat could take away our sins. I mean, I chose to sin. This goat didn't choose uh, anything. It doesn't even know what it's being there for. So it's a completely inefficient thing. And then along comes Jeremiah. Jeremiah is going to blow their heads off with this prophecy. They're in this system. It's temporary. It's awesome. It's the best thing going. And Jeremiah comes along, and uh, now do you recognize what he said? He says, I will make a new covenant with you, not like the ones I made with your father in Sinai. This is going to be something different. The law, the tabernacle, they had all this thing. He says, I'm going to write my law upon your hearts. We dealt with that a few weeks ago. There was this law condemning you, and God says, oh, I'm going to put it inside of you, and then I'm going to move you to follow it. I'm going to impart the grace and the righteousness so you want to do right. So now we're not obeying this external law. We're following the Holy Spirit, and we're going, we're going to accomplish everything the law was after without trying to keep the law. What's the law after? Love God and love people. And, uh, but then he says, your sins and iniquities, I will remember them no more. No more. Like, like, I'm sure thinking, hold on, there's no more day of atonement? How could there be no more day of atonement, right? Uh, you're gonna have, because there's going to be a day of atonement that's going to end all days of atonement. You're going to have a priest that will end all priests. There's going to be an offering that is going to end all offerings. It's going to be over, and never, never, never again will sin be raised as a question. Please don't bring it up to me anymore, God says. Your sins and iniquities, I will remember them no more. Along came Daniel the prophet. He said there's going to be a day where if you offer sacrifices, it's going to be a blasphemy. The sacrifices are going to be completely gone um, because the sin problem has been dealt with forever. Okay? So people begin questioning these prophecies for hundreds of years. They're like, hey, who's this high priest that's going to be able to end all this? What's this sacrifice could possibly, what animal could possibly be a sacrifice that's going to end all sacrifices? And then Jesus came. I want you to see this. Jesus was the high priest and the sacrifice. All right? Do you remember how um, part of the covenant says that he would assume all of our debts? God says, I'm making a new covenant for you. I'm going to assume all of your debts. All of your blemishes, all your iniquities, I'm going to pay the price. And when God says, I will pay them, he really meant he himself would pay those debts. So I want you to see this. God, the eternal, glorious, magnificent God, he sneaks into the human race. He took off his garments of beauty and glory. 
and he looked like just one of us. So much so we're like, hold on, isn't this the carpenter's son? Uh, like, don't we know his brothers and sisters? <laughs> Jesus, our high priest, has taken off his glorious garments and put on simple garments, our humanity. See, the high priest, he's only good if he's, uh, if he's my brother. I have to have a high priest that I can go to and say, listen, man, I'm going through a lot today. Uh, the world seems to be caving in around me, and the high priest has to be able to say, I know how you feel. I've been through it too. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Maybe this will make a little more sense to you. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, where did he ascend? Into Father's place. In Father's house. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Why? Because our high priest represented us and I was in him. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne, Father's house, of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus took off the glory that belonged to him as God, and he uh, snuck into the human race through the Virgin Mary, became one with our humanity, so one that he knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be so exhausted he fell asleep in a boat. He knew what it was like to weep. He knew what it was like to be rejected. He knew what it was like to be abused. Um, listen, there's not a judge in Columbus who wouldn't say sexual abuse is if you took someone, stripped them naked, and put them up on a cross to display for everybody. Jesus has been through what you've been through. He really became one of us. He was tempted in every way, yet he didn't sin. So now our worthy high priest is going to conduct the greatest day of atonement ever, ever conducted, after which it will be blasphemy to ever again make a sacrifice. He himself would be the offering, not the blood of a bull and goat, but the blood of God himself. God is paying for our sin. This is the whole point here. Jesus gathers his disciples in John 14. He says, I'm going away. They're like, really? Well, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to Father's house. You guys remember this in John 14? Well, what are you going to do in Father's house? I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you um, uh, where I am, I'm going to make it so you can be there also. Father's house, what's that? Right in the very presence of God. And so Jesus makes himself the perfect offering. So when Jesus dies on the cross, you could look back and every flash of the Levite's knife that was making the sacrifice, it casts one long shadow pointing to Jesus. All those things were just a shadow of what was to come in Jesus. And when the Lord Jesus died and when his blood was shed, that was the finale of which every offering had ever spoken of. So what happened when Jesus died? Remember Isaiah 53, 6, we've got this verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What did that priest do? He laid the iniquity. He leaned on them and confessed. Jesus was that lamb in which all of our sin was placed. The Lord laid on him. Thank you. I thought somebody would get this here. Oh, there's more coming. Do you know who you were at the cross? So I know the cross happened 2,000 years ago, but I want you to see this. God is outside of time. So step, out, uh, step out from outside of time for a moment. Look at it from God's viewpoint, okay, where there's no time. I don't care how rotten, how awful, how big of a sin, sinner you are against God and people. God took your sin. He took all of it right out of you, and he laid it on the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment you said, Jesus, thank you, this belongs to me, he took all of that sin, laid it on Jesus, so Jesus didn't just die for you, he died as you. He's your representative. It's as if you had paid the price for your sin, but you never had to. 
And even as hundreds of high priests had leaned on the goat and symbolically laid the sin of a nation uh, on the goat, God says, I've laid your sin upon Jesus Christ, only it's for real this time. It's not a symbol. Your sin was laid upon Jesus. God himself has borne the guilt of our sin. And when Jesus died, uh, God says, that's it. It's finished. Everything has been paid for. It's finished forever. Don't bring it up to me again. I'm done. On the Day of Atonement, when their goat died, the high priest had to take the blood into Father's house. This is good. So Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, He's getting ready to take the perfect offering, remember, for real this time. He's taking it for real into the Father's house. Remember on resurrection morning, uh, Mary Magdalene, she has a conversation with Jesus, but she thinks he's the gardener. Remember this? She's talking to him, and all of a sudden he says her name, and she says, Rabboni. She recognizes it's Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? She must have been coming over to touch him and hug him. John 20, 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. What's he saying? I'm on my way to the Father's house. I haven't gone there yet. It's not complete. Don't stop me. So here it is Sunday morning. He, uh, he's, he's literally uh, coming, out, uh, coming out from that as that sin offering, bringing the offering right up into Father's house, Easter Sunday morning. And then he was gone. He was gone into that other world. He just disappeared in front of our eyes. He was gone into that world that's more real than this one. The world that Moses had seen and drawn as a little picture, a little replica, he's now entering into the real thing. High priest had gone into the shadow one. Now Jesus is going into the real heavenly tabernacle. And he went there not with the blood of an animal, but with the blood of his own son. And the Bible describes what it was like. Okay, so now we're going to get a picture unveiled of what it was like in heaven. So Revelation chapter 5, it opens up with John standing in heaven and on Easter Sunday morning. All, the, all, all of heaven is rejoicing. There's, there's a party going on. They're, just, they're super excited. In uh, Revelation chapter 5, angels and cherubim, the seraphim, they're all, they're all worshiping God. Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand, so John's seeing this like a movie. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written with it, within it, and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So John's he sees the, um, the throne of God, and God has his plans for the human race uh, sitting in his hand. And uh, it's God's blueprint. It's all tied up and sealed. And here's the thing, is man had blown it, so that's why it was sealed. God's plan and purposes for man could not, go, could not happen. Okay, the next verse, and I saw, uh, Revelation 5, 2, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one could bring us into Father's house. No one could have us uh, to spread the dominion of God over the planet. So John begins to weep. He realizes the whole human race, they failed forever. Like, like, there's no hope for this. And he said, isn't there anyone that can deal with this and open up the plans for the human race? And just as John is weeping, someone says, hey, John, stop weeping. Look at Revelation 5, 6. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, uh, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open up the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Well, he was just there, Easter Sunday morning. Here he is, coming into Father's house with his own blood. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Remember, the uh, book of Revelation is filled with sign language, signs and symbols, okay? Verse seven, and he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, 
and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, remember this is Easter Sunday morning, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation, language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Boy, it used to just be one tribe and one family, but now we're all priests unto God. Yeah. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. And so uh, they, what they did is they took the largest number in Greek and they just made it plural. It's just whew, legions of angels saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, I mean, even the fish are recognizing this final day of atonement. And all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And all the elders fell down in worship. Guys, the whole Old Testament looked forward to this day. And there was a moment in time when it was finished. An actual moment where our sin was wiped out and made as if it never was. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. We started with this. Let's see if it makes a little more sense now. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away our sins. Remember, they could never sit down. They're constantly offering. Why? Because the people kept blowing it. Slice, chop, burn, slice, chop, burn. Rivers of blood. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single uh, sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down. Hundreds of years, the priests stood ministering daily. But now they didn't need to anymore because the price had been paid. He sat down in Father's house at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, guys, the price has been paid in full for all time. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. What if I tell a lie and I go out and get hit by a car? He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's interesting. He sat down at the right hand of God. In Ephesians, we find out we're now seated at the right hand of God. Are we standing? We're seated. Why are we seated? Because the price has been paid. We've got full access to Father's house. Ephesians uh, chapter, uh, when he sat down at the right hand of God, that means power. Ephesians 1, verse 20 and 21, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. There he is in that heavenly tabernacle. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. So what happened, Jesus ascends to the Father's house with his own blood. The new covenant was cut. Your sins and iniquities will be remembered never again. Listen, guys, God remembers your sins no more because he remembers them in the body of his dear son. For God to remember your sins and hold them against you, he would have to forget about what Jesus did. Let's use our imagination for a moment as we're closing in here. You can imagine Jesus, just imagine Jesus sits down to the Father. The price has been paid. <laughs> All of heaven's rejoicing. They're singing, worthy is the Lamb. The purposes of God, the scrolls are being unsealed. The purposes of God can, be, uh, can go into man's life again. Imagine Jesus turns to his father and says, listen, I've got to go and get the others. 
I promised them I would come and prepare a place for them in Father's house. I promised them that where I would go, they could be also. And I guarantee them that because I live, they would also live also. And Father says, okay, here's the gift of the Holy Spirit for all those who believe what you've done. So Lord Jesus comes back into our dimensions. You remember this, the, the disciples are up in that upper room and he walks through the doorway and says, peace, y'all. Remember that? And uh, remember Jesus promised, I will come again. This was not talking about the second coming. There's lots of verses that talk about the second coming. But when Jesus came again, he appears in an upper room. Remember, it's after the resurrection. They're freaking out. They're, they're, they're scared. He comes in the night of the resurrection out of the Father's house, shows him his hands, shows him his feet, shows him the sacrifice was accepted. Just like the high priest would come out, and we would know the sacrifice was accepted. He comes and shows himself to them. The lamb had been slain. Here's the marks. The offering is complete. But they didn't feel anything yet. All that happened in the invisible realm. They didn't feel it. They didn't see it. I mean, I appreciate the fact that you're telling me. I believe that it happened, but they didn't feel anything yet. Do you remember the second goat? Israel didn't just hear about what was happening in the invisible. They had a visual picture so they could feel and experience their sin leaving their life. So Jesus gathers with his disciples in John chapter 20, not only to tell them what had happened, but he draws them close and says, oh, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the second goat. He made it real to them. He made it so they could see it and feel it. Now man is united with God in one moment with our covenant God. I am in him. He is in me. The two have become one. There's a new covenant. And in that moment, we enter Father's house. We enter into the very presence of God. We can live there. We can fellowship with him. We don't have to do anything else. We are seated with him. Guys, we're not waiting for a second coming to take us into the Father's house. We've been there for a long time already. You and I are covenant kids. We live in Father's house through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So it's interesting. It started in an uh, earthly tabernacle and then takes it into the heavenly tabernacle. Then Jesus comes back into this earthly realm and breathes his Holy Spirit on them. And I want you to see this. He took that heavenly reality, that heavenly tabernacle, heavenly, that heavenly Father's house, and puts it inside of you. The tabernacle is now inside of you. And he went, oh, receive the Holy Spirit. You are now Father's house. You are a tabernacle with two legs and two arms. You are his dwelling place. He says, I'm going to prepare a room. You're that room. He says, my father, Jesus said, my father and I will come and make our home in you. You are the new father's house. All right, let's read uh, Hebrews 10, 19 again in closing. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. The second goat bears witness to us. Do you see that? He brings it into our experience. For after saying, he's quoting Jeremiah now, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on, my, on their minds. We already looked at that. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Verse 18, where there's forgiveness of sins, there is no longer, well, I'm sorry, where there's the forgiveness of these, what? Sins and iniquities. Where there's forgiveness of all your sins, all your iniquities, there's no longer any offering for sin. The ultimate day of atonement has already taken place. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, guys, you're not an outsider. No distance, no separation. 
by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. You are now living in a permanent day of atonement. You are the Father's house. Let's stand for closing prayer. Man, that is some good news. That is some super good news. God's got better things for you than for you to just, uh, you know, no one wants it written on their tombstone. And she paid her bills. Like, you're not just here to survive. You've entered into Father's, Father's house. All of his resources become our resources. So here's my challenge for us this morning. Is I'm not going to give an altar call for you to come beg and scream and, and, and try to get this. Be who you are. What if you begin to act as if you were in union with God? When you needed wisdom, he gave you wisdom. When you needed strength, when you needed love for that obnoxious person, you actually had love. You began to live out of who you are. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Jesus, we love you. You're so good. Thank you for being our great high priest. Thank you for being the ultimate sacrifice. Thank you for bringing us into the Father's house where we can stay there. We're so thankful. We love you, Jesus. Thank you.